welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. here this evening. And uh, this is lecture number three in our series of 14 lectures on sex and gender. And uh, this is, this lecture is going to be on the goodness of gender, perhaps one of the most important uh, lectures in the series. We, we, we built some foundation last uh, last lecture, but we'll be doing so again further in this lecture. Um, it's also a lecture that perhaps uh, <laughs> I might get in trouble for, at least in the sense of the world. I don't think that anything that I'm saying is that controversial. And yet uh, we know that the world in which we live considers things controversial, which ought not to be, or things that we would consider as being uh, very controversial, they, uh, our, our world considers as normal. Um, well, I want to start by suggesting a bit of a game to you. We're not actually going to play the game, but I want to talk about the game and I'll kind of walk you through the game. The game is called the diversity game. It's a game that I've played with uh, a number of different groups over the years as I speak about gender and, uh, and sexuality. And uh, the game goes like this. I ask the audience, what is good about being young or old? I want you to think about that question for a second. Imagine you've got two sides. You divided your, your notes, uh, your note page into two categories, young and old. And I'm asking you what's good about being one or the other. And, and often uh, there's, there's pretty good consensus on the sorts of things that would be good about being young, things like energy, um, 
about being old, things like experience, and we could we could tease that out very much uh, a little further. But then we, we take a second step in what we call the diversity game, and, and the question is, what is good about a certain ethnicity, about being a certain ethnicity? And I'll throw out a couple of ethnicities, and, and of course, it maybe depends on what ethnicities you are you know, most knowledgeable of. Um, I pastor a church that is roughly half Filipino, so I'm very familiar with that culture. So I'll sometimes throw out, listen, what is, uh, what do you appreciate about Filipinos? Or you can choose any other ethnicity. And so uh, that usually goes really well. People are happy to talk about what they appreciate about different ethnic groups. Uh, and then I'll ask in the third phase of the diversity game, what's good about being male and female? I ask people to write a, you know, once again, divide their page into two halves and to take a bit of time sometimes to work in groups and say, listen, what's good about being male on one side? What's good about uh, females on the other side? And depending on the group, sometimes this last aspect of the game can be harder than, than for others. Uh, some people don't have too much of a difficulty with it. Uh, other groups find it incredibly difficult, the game. And I just want you to stop and think about yourself, what you would put on either side of those. What would you put on, you know, the side of what's, you know, good about female or what's good about male? And one of the, sometimes then after we debrief with people, even in groups where that game goes, you know, fairly well, or people, you know, throw out their, their answers with, you know, some ease. Sometimes I'll ask them, listen, did you find that exercise difficult. And even those that kind of threw out their answers pretty quickly, most of them will say, yeah, you know, I find that kind of difficult, that exercise. And one of the reasons why people find that exercise difficult, and I want you to relate it to the prior two parts of the diversity game, everybody goes through the stages, if you're old, of being young, you, you can't avoid it. All right. So everybody who is old has the experience of being young. Um, it's, it's just a phase that we'll all go through if God gives us more time. When it comes to ethnicities, uh, of course, that's something that's unique to individuals. And yet, there are so many ethnicities that when you say, for instance, that, you know, the Filipino people are incredibly loyal only by way of a very vague inference that would probably never occur to most people, are you saying that the other ethnicities are not loyal? However, because as we took a look at last in the last lecture, because the human race is binary in its form and dyadic in male and female and only those two sexes, because of that, the diversity game when it comes to male and female gets a little difficult. Because if you say, let me choose a characteristic that is very obvious and very easy to empirically support. If you say that men are physically stronger, what you are saying sounds like, feels like women are weaker. All right. There's a there's almost this inferred negative that goes with the positive when you deal with something that is binary. 
So this is the world in which we live, that we live in a world that is not comfortable with stereotypes and it's and it's very uncomfortable with saying anything like well because of your sex you know you might have some sort of weakness relative to the opposite sex um, but it is incumbent upon us as Christians to understand what is good about each sex, to be able to celebrate that. And frankly, as Christians, we should not be surprised by the fact that in our sex, that we have every strength. Um, we, we briefly considered in the last lecture that each person is made in the image of God no person is made more in the image of God than anyone else. And yet, it's inferred in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, when it says that he made man in his own image, but then male and female, he made them. It's inferred that you need both male and female to fully image God on the earth. And so if this is the case, then we shouldn't be surprised that, well, we need one another. And that need is pictured in the best way in marriage, not the only way, but the best way in marriage, even within a church, even if we were made up of a, a great amount of, for instance, singles of male and female, we would, you know, we would still need that, that balance. Um, and yet again, in, in marriage, it's meant to, you're meant to have that combining and that, that form of almost a, an arch, archetypal society of humanity in that marriage. So what I want to do with this lecture on the goodness of gender is first, I want to um, talk about a little bit about how we should understand the relationship of God and his characteristics to the good characteristics as they exist in male and female. All right. And then I'm going to talk about a few general patterns that I think uh, might be helpful in sort of coming to some general understandings of the differences between men and women. And then I'm going to develop uh, two triads, a male triad, a female triad that I think uh, are helpful in understanding what's good about being male and female. And I'm going to say this at, at the outset, in case I forget and don't say it any in, uh, later on, I might say it again later on, because I think it's important. What is, what is crucial is that you have an idea of what is good about male and female. If you disagree with what I think about what is good about being male or female, I'm okay with that. But then make sure that you develop your own thinking if it is different than mine. All right. So I think that we should understand that male and female differentially evidence the characteristics of God. So let me, let me come back to one of my most obvious examples, and that is male physical strength. All right. Uh, this is something that's empirically, it's not really in question as regards to a differential between male and female. Uh, one study found that men had 80% greater upper body strength and 50% greater lower body strength than women. Uh, you see this in, in sports. Um, it is why it is it, it just so... It's hard to put it in words. It's so crazy that we've arrived at a place where males who identify as women are now competing in male sports. Um, I could 
speak about that at some length. But um, one of the ways that scientists or people trying to communicate this differential have, have tried to help people understand the difference is by saying this, that 90% of men are physically stronger than 90% of women. All right. So you, you might know some women that are incredibly strong, physically strong. I, I do. I, I grew up with, uh, with uh, a girl and I mean, heading into even adolescence, she was, she could hold her own with the men, a uh, kind of a tomboy. She was incredibly strong, but that's, that's quite rare. Uh, 90% of men are stronger than 90% of women. So there's a, there's a, a clear differential between male and female. And, and what I want you to understand is that strength is a characteristic from, uh, of God. It's a characteristic of God. And is, it is expressed more greatly in male than female. But here's the thing is that that characteristic is predominantly good before it is predominantly gendered. Okay. This is, this is extremely important. These characteristics are good before they're gendered. Why is this important? Well, it's important because if, for instance, you've got a daughter who is really, really strong or to develop a, a female characteristic that I will talk about before the time we're done. Uh, if you've got a, a son who's particularly sensitive, those are bad things. They may lie, out, lie outside the sort of the general, general characteristics of that gender, but they're good. They belong to God. And so as they are expressed in humans, whether in a characteristic way, you might say a stereotypical way or in a um, unstereotypical way, it, it's still good. So let me get to some general patterns that I think are helpful. And uh, in the last lecture, we talked about how in male and female, you have a reflection of the Trinity, not mapped one-to-one, -one, of course, because in the Trinity, you've got three. In male and female, you've got two. Um, yet, there are some, some reflections of the unity and the diversity of God in the unity and diversity of man as male and female. So here's, here's one that I introduced last week. It's primacy and preeminence. Primacy and preeminence. Uh, males have a certain primacy. You see this in the fact that Adam was created first, and that's important. It ennobles man. But Eve is created last, and that too is important, and it ennobles her because it comes at the crescendo of creation, uh, just in a similar way as you might save the best for last. Uh, Eve has this ennobling aspect to her, this preeminence to her because she is created last. Um, we see he goes into her. He lies with her. Whereas the woman responds to the man. She helps him. She bears him a son. That's the language of scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that woman never initiates, but there are patterns that ought to communicate to us. So for instance, in the, in the Song of Solomon, we read, this, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's the woman speaking. And she doesn't, you know, she doesn't say, I want to kiss him with the kisses of my mouth. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Um, Draw me after you. This is Song of Solomon 1.4. Let us run. So she wants to be with him, but she says, draw me after you. We could keep going, but this is, this is normative in scripture. 
Uh, let me mention one other pattern before we get to the triads. Um, the pattern of act and being. Uh, now we know that in theology, these two are one in God. I'm not sure if you've um, delved into this, into theology, but in his being, God is pure act. Anybody heard that phrase before? What that means is that there's no potential with God. There's nothing that God, um, there's no growth that God could have. Uh, he is constant in everything that he does and is, and his is is the same as he does. Right? They're, they're one, act and being. And I think that work and activity is reflected in the outward orientation of man, which we saw last week briefly in Genesis 3, where the curse is upon man's work in particular, and that the relational aspect to woman that we saw in the curse on Eve in Genesis 3, upon her bearing of children and on, on her relationship to man, um, suggests that in her, being and rest are emphasized. And I'm going to come back to that later. So, with some of these general patterns in place, here we go. I'm going to try to do my best um, on unfolding, first of all, a male triad and then a female triad. And again, if, uh, if you think there are things that are wrong in how I characterize the sort of how male and female, how the strengths of God are best reflected or characterized in them, Feel free to, to do better than me, advance it, change it, but by all means, you need to have an understanding of how it is that female is good and male is good. So here's my male triad. It is promote, protect, provide. Promote, protect, provide. And this triad is uh, oriented first sort of upward that Man promotes others, um, and in a certain sense, I'll talk about sort of promotes himself to a certain degree, but inwardly protects others, and then outwardly, re relative to their work in the world, provides for others. So regarding promotion, the passage that comes to my mind is Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 26 and 27, and, and you may know that in Ephesians 5, Paul is giving instructions to husbands and wives. But he relates this to the relationship between Christ and the church. And in this reflection, um, Christ is relative to the man in primacy and in what he does. And the, it's the wife who is sort of relative and a reflection of the church. So within this, Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 26, speaking now specifically of Christ, but still the echo reverberating out into the marriage relationship, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there you have the idea of Christ having died for the church, now promoting her glorifying her, lifting her up, presenting her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. 
that's the idea of promotion. And uh, the, it's important to note that the people that are able to promote others are those who do so from a position or a place of either authority or of being lifted up themselves. And so this really attaches to the idea of the primacy of, of man. Um, and I believe that this reflects the relationship between the, between the father and the son. That the father is normative, and yet he lifts up his son within creation and redemption. And in fact, it is Jesus Christ. Yes, we worship father, son, and spirit. We can worship each one uh, separately in a sense. Of course, never completely separately, because where you have one, you have three. But it is particularly the son who is the object of our worship, reflecting the preeminence, the fact that Christ has been lifted up. He has come, you could say, sort of out of the bosom of the father to be lifted up and, and promoted. So the male is to promote. And even, uh, it's interesting, as I reflect on my own children, I see this in my boys, that they, in their competition to, you know, want to be better than the other, what they're doing, in, in of course, a fallen way, often, uh, but what they're doing is in that comparison, they're, they're wrestling with the idea of promotion. And it's something that can actually be harnessed for good. All right, the second part of the triad is protect. Protect. And as is the case with most of these triads, if you followed me with sort of... <laughs> my big long list of looking through the world through these triads. Um, it's always the last part of the triad, the one that's outward, that's sort of the most uh, obvious or easy to wrap your mind around. So the idea of promotion may be a little bit obscure, but we're, gonna, we're getting to some things that are, um, I think, more, more obvious. So when it comes to protection, you know, what man we know empirically has greater strength, uh, what is man to do with that? Well, the answer is to protect others. And in fact, this should be the case, whether you're, you know, whether you're male or female or, or whatever it is. Wh whenever you have uh, an advantage in some way, you should use that to serve others. And so when the advantage is strength, you should use that to bless and in this case to protect. So for instance, uh, when we come to the story of Abraham and Isaac in the, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, we have these stories of how in both cases, they either half lied or fully lied about their wives and their relationship with them as they were in foreign lands, that we know that that is particularly wrong because men ought to protect their wives and their families. It, 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 it would feel a little different if it was vice versa. Similarly, with the story in Judges with Deborah and Barak, uh, when, when Deborah says, hey, listen, you know, Go out and, and fight Sisera. God's going to give you the victory. And when Barak says, well, I'm only going to go if you go with me, we, we inherently, we go, that's not right. That's not right. The men should be going out to battle, right? They should be the one protecting um, those who are less physically strong. And so, again, it's interesting that as I think about, uh, I, have, I have four boys, um, you know, they, they love to wrestle. They love to um, 
they love to wrestle with one another or with me, and that's a good thing. They're, they're trying on their strength. They're, they're working on protecting and developing that. And uh, every so often, I've, I've heard husbands have to tell their wives and go, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay if they rough, you know, there's the rough and tumble, there's the wrestling, there's even a few, you know, maybe it breaks out into fist fights once in a row. It's not good, but it's like, it's not terrible either, right? Like, this is, uh, this is, this is part of growing up. Men should protect. Lastly, men should provide. And we, we see this again in Genesis 3, where, well, and in Genesis 2, where man is created to work the earth. And he is, when the, when the curse comes upon man, the curse is relative to the ground. You know, the thorns and the thistles are going to grow up, and, and it's going to be difficult for you to uh, do this work that I gave you to do, which is to take care of the earth and subdue it, uh, to have dominion over it. But this, uh, this work, this provision, is, is an important part of what makes man man, and it is a good thing. Um, Jordan Peterson has, um, not, not necessarily working from the same triad or even from the same scriptures, although he's somebody that uh, appreciates scripture, but he has, he has often remarked that, you know, when you look at the data, for instance, on why men are paid more than women in the workforce, he says, you need to do a lot of understanding about some of the different facets of that. And, and, and there's a couple of things worth noting. Uh, about how male and female differences play out in, and result in this disparity of you know, how much men and women are, are paid in different jobs, comparable jobs. But one of them is that men generally, these are generalizations, they love to work more than women do. Um, you know, it, we probably all know men that will like sort of left to themselves, I don't know what exactly, Exactly that would mean, but they would work 60 hours, 80 hours. Like it's it's part of the fabric of who they are. Um, this is different. There's some other things that go into this as well, but um, when it comes to some of those higher level level or higher echelon jobs, you know, men are sometimes putting in again this 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. Again, that's not saying that's good, but I'm saying that even when you get ruin and sin attached to our behaviors or our gendered behaviors, they're ruined in gendered ways. The fall still comes about uh, and affects sort of the, the creational designs. So, male triad, promote, protect, provide. Upward, inward, outward. So let me now unfold the female triad. And um, I could say, I'm going to come back to these triads when it comes to our next lecture, because we're going to talk about um, attractiveness, or sorry, attraction. Well, it's partly attractiveness, but, but attraction, how these triads work facing one another, all right? And, uh, and work themselves out in attraction, and, and then even talking about dating and so on and so forth. But here's the female triad, all right? Uh, females, I believe, are first resplendent, and you're going to, I know, yeah, wow, what's, what kind of word is that? You can, I'm, you can tell I'm trying really hard to get the alliteration here, all right? Choose a different word if you want. Resplendent, restful, 
and responsive. Resplendent, restful, and responsive. Um, you may note, if some of you or not, that, uh, that actually I framed these three words in a different way than I framed the, the three, the, the triad of males. Did you see that? The, the male triad is listed as, as verbs, whereas these are, are adjectives. Um, I'm, I'm trying to capture a little bit of sort of the act of being comparison that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you can gather for yourself or test for yourself whether you think that's fitting or not. Um, I think it's helpful. So first of all, what do I mean, what do I, what do I mean pardon me, by resplendent? Well, the, the, the word I'd probably use if, uh, if I wasn't trying to get the alliteration would be glorious. A uh, woman is glorious. And we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, in a passage that probably the church doesn't look at enough because it's difficult to apply. You know? the, the clear instruction, I think it's clear. There'd be some debate about this. I think it's clear that what Paul was saying to his audience at the time was women should cover their heads in worship. Uh, there's debate, of course, whether we ought to follow that nowadays. Maybe because of the awkwardness of that, the passage isn't mined as deeply, perhaps, as it ought to be. But, uh, but it's a beautiful passage. Uh, and in it, 1 Corinthians 11.7, it says, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So, even if we don't think that ought to apply sort of literally, I'll use that word, uh, in our current day and age, we still need to understand in its original context what Paul is saying there. He's saying that within worship, Man shouldn't cover his head, the most prominent part of his body, the part of his body that, in fact, reflects God the clearest. Because it's, it's the face with that visual and those sensory aspects. It's the, it's the mind, which is the citadel of the soul. Man shouldn't cover that in worship. All right? Because he is the image and glory of God. But it's different for the woman. Why? Well, because she is the glory of man. Let me try to frame that. hope I'm not going to get into trouble by doing so. Let me try to frame that in the vernacular. In context, speaking to Corinth, women should cover their heads in worship because they make the race of man look good and worship's not about the race of man. Of God. All right. So there is a glory to woman, and, and I've used the word preeminence as well, which I think may also be a helpful uh, idea. But this takes into account the idea of beauty, but not just physical beauty. Now, I, I'm going to say not just physical beauty, but I am going to unpack physical beauty a little bit because. I think in our day and age, I think we've lost a little bit because we're so concerned about stereotypes. I think we've lost 
the virtue of beauty, uh, especially as it relates to male and female, but perhaps in other ways as well. If you look at modern architecture, it's like, wow, where's, where's the beauty that used to exist in, you know, in modern, now in modern architecture? It's just, it's just gone. Uh, or in you know, modern art. Um, so perhaps we've lost beauty as a virtue in broader ways as well. But beauty, physical beauty, is a virtue. It is something inherently good. It is not merely, it is not merely a characteristic. Um, it is something inherently good. And in fact, our God is beautiful. In Psalm 45, it says of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that he is the most handsome of the sons of man. Um, so beauty is something that is inherent within God and is reflected in so many ways in this earth, in creation, in, you know, in the trees and the flowers and even the animals. Um, but it's reflected in female in a different way and in a greater way than in male. And every once in a while, I've, I've tried to bounce these ideas off of women. So <laughs> just my inherent bias is coming through. Well, of, co of course you think women are beautiful. You're, you're a guy. Uh, but, you know, I've asked women, too, at times, like, okay, what do you think are the, you know, the, the strengths of, of women or the, you know, what characteristics of God or image? And, and invariably, people will, will say, the ones I've asked, that women are more beautiful than men. And, and um, I think that that's very, very clear. So, um, but because we are whole beings, this glory, this resplendence that women have is more than you could say only beauty, and I'm a little uncomfortable with that because I think that that beauty, again, is a virtue. But um, it's, it's, it's the comprehensive person that is radiant uh, and is reflected in, in women in a greater way. Um, I actually have a good relationship with quite a number of radical feminists. And, and I'm not a feminist, and frankly, if they were listening to the, most of them, if they were listening to this particular lecture, they'd be... Uh, quite incensed at many of the things I'm saying. Nevertheless, um, you know, it's interesting to hear their perspectives on, on certain things. And one of the things that would never have occurred to me um, that some feminists have, have noted is, is how men will often ask them in an unwanted way to smile. Now, I don't know if any of the women in the room have ever had that, but from what I gather, it is the experience of many women that even as they're walking down the street, that they'll have a, a, a male stranger say, you know, listen, smile. And, and by that, it's, they, they take it as something that's very unwelcome a lot of the time because, because it's almost like a cat call. That, that, that's, that's kind of the way they feel, uh, the, these women in, the, in these cases. And so men, don't, don't do that. <laughs> um, but, but again, when things go wrong, they go wrong in creational ways. And why would a man, a stranger, want a woman to smile? Well, it's because there's a radiance and a glory there that he wants to enjoy. Again, I don't think that's good, but, but, um, but there's, there's something in women that is glorious. Restful. 
This one is interesting, uh, but I'm convinced that it is one uh, a wonderful characteristic of, of God that he not only works for six days, but then he rests. You know, why does he rest? God doesn't have to rest. There's no need to rest. He didn't get tired on those six days. But his rest communicates something, and not only to us, and that, you know, setting a pattern for us that we need to rest, that, although that's true. But it also communicates that God is a God of, I'm going to use the word extravagance. A God of abundance, a God of, um, of the superfluous. <laughs> that, you know, think about all the things that God gives you that you don't need, but he gives it, them to you anyways. I mean, the list is enormous. He gives us so many gifts. And there is, a, there is a, an aspect to the particularity of, of women and to the being of women that is, that is restful for those around them. Um, I think you see this reflected in a number of ways. I actually see this, I think this is reflected when women go out to have coffee with one another. And they need that for their own souls and spirits in a way that men don't. All right? Do I like hanging out with the men? Yeah, I do. I do. But I don't need it in the same way. I don't need it in the same way. But there's a rest that those women are providing even for one another in that way. So I'm deliberately using an example here that's not dyadic, okay, uh, between male and female. But now getting to that, that dyad of, of male and female, man who is oriented often towards his work and, and accomplishing things in the world, he then turns back to his wife. And you see, I think you see this communicated even when um, Eve is brought to Adam in Genesis 2. And the idea is like, okay, I finally found my place of, of rest and comfort in this woman. Uh, she is his rest. And it is because she is his rest that that she is the one who, who sort of makes the home for the man. Uh, she, she loves to do that. Um, you know, some people talk about the, the nesting instinct that women have when children come, or, or maybe, even, maybe even just when people are coming over. Well, you want the, the home to look nice. And, but there's an idea there of providing rest providing a place of comfort and of being uh, away from the, the de, uh, what's the word, the, 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 the fight. I don't mean necessarily in regards to sin, but the fight that happens in the world, the struggle, the subjugation of the world that is natural even apart from the fall. So woman provides man with rest. Uh, and this is actually one of the reasons why I think that women really should be careful about working too much outside the home. I don't think it's wrong for women to work outside the home.
but I think that when women do work outside the home too much, it can take away from the rest that they provide for the rest of the family. Pardon the, the, the pun, but, um, and it creates anxiety. And there's actually studies that would, sh that would show this, that women that work outside the home uh, have more anxiety than those who do not. Um, so rest. The last part of the triad is responsive. And again, we arrive at something uh, that, you know, if resplendence is a little hard to wrap your mind around, um, and maybe even to some degree rest a little bit, but, but responsive, this is, this is well documented in the, uh, the personality studies of male and female. So for instance, um, females are more likely to be relationally responsive and emotionally open to others in the, in the studies on personality. The, now the fascinating thing about a lot of these studies is that as they have developed these studies throughout many years and, uh, and, and done them in many different parts in the world, they've arrived now at the place where they can make some very large generalizations uh, such that this effect is, is there in every single society. It's not something that is, you know, only taking place in one society according to certain social norms. And in fact, uh, in a couple of studies, they've, well, as they start to compare these, um, I guess it's particular studies in certain places relative to the larger body um, of work on the personality studies, that they see that within countries that are more egalitarian, that women actually are more emotionally responsive. So what this means is almost completely contradictory to people that say that all gender stuff is, it's all social norms, it's all learned behavior and that kind of thing. There's nothing innate in it. The studies say the exact opposite. That where you have uh, societies where we've tried to remove the social norms from society, that what happens is that women with that quote unquote freedom is they gravitate more towards their natural sort of instincts, if you will, or their natural characteristics. But women are more responsive. And again, this is something that is good, all right? I believe that God is responsive. I also believe he is absolutely sovereign but I believe he is responsive as well. Um, but I think you might see, I'm not gonna unpack this really, but I, I think you see the responsiveness of God, particularly in the Holy Spirit. Um, again, you can, you can mull that over in your mind. I'm not gonna really unpack that uh, much right now. Um, but women are more responsive to, uh, to men, to their children, and there's actually even biological aspects to this. Some of you may be aware, others not, that there are hormonal changes that take place in a woman's body when she gives birth, such that she becomes more attuned to relational cues, um, presumably, especially towards her children. Uh, and so, you know, where, you know, where, where women have that, you know, that, 
responsiveness towards their children, that tenderness, that gentleness, that grace towards their children that maybe men wouldn't have. And I think both are, are probably good. Maybe men are more likely to go, come on, you know, get in line. <laughs> uh, some of that is maybe appropriate some of the time, but children need much grace too. And, and women are oriented towards that, not only by how God has created them in their personality, but also even biologically um, through childbirth and hormone changes. But women are more responsive. So here's one last thing before I close about responsiveness, because I believe this, this responsiveness is not only emotional, I believe it's also spiritual. So in every single place and religious group where they have studied this, they have found that women are more religious than men. Fascinating. Okay, this does not hold true only for Christianity. It's also true in every other religion where they've in place they've studied this. What's going on there? Well, I think women are more attuned naturally to the spiritual world. Um, Another aspect of this is that women, I think I may have mentioned this in my lecture last week. I don't recall, uh, recall precisely, but uh, women are actually more likely to be both influential and influenced than men. So they're more likely to be influencers, but they're also more likely to be influenced. Whereas men are less likely to influence, say, other men than women are but they're also less likely to be influenced by you know, the man or a woman than, than a woman would be. Right? But this is part of the responsiveness that, that women have. Um, so just to close, this is my attempt, my latest thinking. I've uh, been developing it for many, many years and yet still trying to add to it, trying to find different ways of um, of communicating it and, and seeing it reflected in the world. At the, you know, you may agree with some, uh, you may agree with very little of what I just said, but what I think is the most important thing to understand is that male and female is good. They reflect the characteristics of God and his strengths in differential ways. And you need to have a theology about what is good about being your gender, and you need to be able to have uh, a theology of what's good about the opposite person's gender as well for marriage and for your other relations. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.